Welcome to Table 86, a podcast celebrating Black and other underrepresented talent transforming the landscape of the food and beverage industry. I'm your host, Gio Darwin. Let's take a seat. As a blogger, I know firsthand how social media can at times lead to imposter syndrome and feelings of insecurity. That's why it's so refreshing when I meet another blogger who is able to bring their full selves to their content. At the table today is my friend Marta Rivera Diaz, the phenomenal content creator at the helm of the blog Sense and Edibility. In this episode, Marta shares how her culinary career has been shaped by her Puerto Rican and Black heritage as well as her military upbringing. She also offers some much-needed encouragement on how one can cultivate authenticity when sharing their gifts and talents with the world. I can't thank you enough for joining the podcast tonight. I am super excited to be here with you. You and I, from the very first time we kind of connected over the internet, have just always had a vibe. And yeah, I'm I'm really excited and honored that you've invited me here. And, um, you know, I'm just I'm ready to get into this. This is going to be fun. Yeah, I love um, when you introduce yourself. So for my (laughs) listeners, can you say your name, how you would say it, how you would introduce yourself? (laughs) My name is Marta Rivera Diaz. Um, Yeah, and it's just said just like that, Marta. It's not Martha with an H. Everybody wants to do that. Or Maria, it's Marta. Marta, I never could roll my R's. And that's why I asked you to do it. Because obviously, (laughs) you got it. You've been saying it your whole life, right? (laughs) You know what? And I will take Marta, because you know, that's, that's the way it's spelled. Um, But yeah, yeah. I mean, I know, you know, our, our rolling can be difficult for some people. So I give people (laughs) grace. (laughs) So I know you are of Afro Latino descent. Um, Afro-Latinx descent. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your upbringing? I know you're originally from the East Coast. Yes. So I actually like to tell people that though I am Afro-Latina because I identify with the African um, ancestry and the roots of my Puerto Rican, um, you know, relatives and my heritage, I'm also Black. Mm -hmm. So I'm African-American and I'm Puerto Rican. So when you get down to it, I am Black and Latina, I am Afro-Latina, I am all those great things that um, come from the African diaspora. I am a military brat. I have been a military family member since conception. Uh, Both of my parents were active duty airmen in the United States Air Force, so I grew up um, being bussed around to different, you know, duty stations and countries and states. Um, New York city is home. Both of my parents are from the New York, uh, tri-state area. Um, my dad's from Jersey, North Jersey. And my mom is from, well, she was born in Puerto Rico, but she was raised in Brooklyn. Mm. So that's where home always was. That was always the launching pad and where we returned for holidays. So, you know, New York is just, New York city is home. But now I am a a resident of the state of Texas. The great country of Texas. The great republic of Texas. (laughs) Yeah, Texas is its own. I'm telling you, Texans have a very uh, strong love of their state, which, you know, it's it's an amazing state. It's huge. Um, And there's plenty of things to do in different cultures, which is amazing. 
Um, but after I left home, I surprisingly married an active duty soldier, which was not in my plan. <laughs> um, my husband served in the army for 26 years and we, wow, that's an accomplishment. It is a huge <laughs> accomplishment. He actually joined the military when he was 17 from Puerto Rico. Wow. Barely being able to speak very good English, but he, you know, he holds his own. Um, yeah, but I followed him around for 20 years and we ended up in Texas when he retired um, back in 2019. So uh, he retired a year and a half to two years ago, I assume. Mm-hmm. Um, and you something special is that you all are building your dream home, which oh. I'm following on Instagram <laughs> stories. Um, yeah, it looks lovely. <laughs> I know that's been a strenuous process, but uh, what has been what has been most fulfilling about that process? Because I'm seeing so many cool things in this house. I think the most fulfilling thing is to, you know, every time we go do a, you know, a check of the house, which is on a weekly basis, Hector and I, my husband stand on the back porch of this home that we're building. And we kind of just process the fact that a kid from, you know, the not so nice part of Puerto Rico and a girl who grew up you know, barely making ends meet in our family. I mean, we were the working poor growing up. So Mm -hmm. for us to be standing on our own land in a home that we are building from the ground up and it is our literally our dream home, it's very humbling. So I think the most fulfilling part about that is that when Hector and I were married, we were literally pawning VCRs and and TVs in order to be able mm. to afford groceries. So, and I mean, it's not lost. It shouldn't be lost. The irony should not be lost on anyone, but least of all me, that a chef has to pawn, you know, household items to afford food. Right. And now we have sprint, saved, sacrificed, hustled, and worked so hard to be able to to afford this opportunity. That is the resounding sentiment between my husband and I and our children, too, to be able to reach that that point in our life where everything that we are standing on right now belongs to us. And it is the result of our hard work. Yeah, that's beautifully stated. And I I know I was going to next I was going to ask about your children because um, I love your relationship with your children. (laughs) Um, I, I, I love to see it. It sounds like you are an extremely loving mother, but also know when to give tough love. Um, you're, and, but, um, it's obvious you have two extremely intelligent, um, (laughs) very cultured, very well-rounded children. Um, and so I know that's another part of your identity. Um, tell me a little bit about your kids and, um, your relationship with them. So I have 15 year old twins. They are fraternal twins. I have boy girl twins and um, they are my best creation. I mean, I've, mm. I've, Hector and I have never done anything right more than we've done these two. Right. And it's just, they're, they are the coolest people on the planet. I think <laughs> um, we've homeschooled them their entire lives. So we don't pandemic school. I don't think we would have survived if we had to just, dive into it during the pandemic right (laughs) we did we started homeschooling them when they were three because you know why not I mean and they are 
exceptionally intelligent children. And I'm not saying that just because they're mine, because me and Hector aren't that smart. Like we're <laughs> not that intelligent. So when, you know, when we have conversations with them, it's, it's very, it's humbling. I, I like to think that I'm a very loving, doting, uh, adoring mom, but I'm also a mom that doesn't play. Yeah. So I, I don't, see that. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I mean, I'm not a fan of disrespect, disrespectful children. I'm not a fan of disrespectful people in general. Right. And my, my philosophy is that you have to raise your children to inhabit the world. So no. I don't want to raise children that are super, you know, self-centered or entitled that they believe that the world owes them something because the, the world doesn't owe you anything, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think I, I really put that into play when it comes to my parenting. Now you mentioned that your mother had lived with you and you also mentioned that your mother was from Puerto Rico. What part of Puerto Rico was she from? My, my mother is, was from the mountains of Puerto Rico in a place. Well, she grew up in San Lorenzo, Puerto Rico, which is, I mean, when I tell you it's the mountain, like the country Mm. of Puerto Rico, it is the altitude, like the air changes. And thinking about your mother, like what foods were native to the region that she grew up in Puerto Rico and, and, and more broadly thinking about your childhood, what was that eating experience like? What did food look like in your home, um, having parents from these two different cultures? Well, where my mother grew up, she had, there was an abundance of fresh fruits and vegetables. We, you know, when we go back to visit our family, we can go outside and literally pick green bananas off the the, the tree. Mm. We can pick, I mean, star fruit, any tropical fruit you can think of. It's probably growing on my family property somewhere, passion fruit, guava, all that stuff. So what's funny is that in Puerto Rico before, you know, they were colonized and civilized by, you know, the United States and Spain, they were eating very fresh, unprocessed from the, from the earth foods. They had a very healthy diet. It wasn't until the USDA became a thing in their life that canned and processed food was incorporated into their diet. Mm. So when we look at civilization and being civilized. And I use that term very loosely and very, you know, dripping with sarcasm. Right. (laughs) They they were actually taught to eat unhealthier than they were eating before they were supposed to be civilized. You know what I mean? I, I get it completely. Yeah. So when I was growing up, it's funny because my mother didn't have the time to cook meals because she, again, she was in, in the Air Force. And we're talking about during the time of the Gulf, you know, the Gulf War and, and you know, having to go to Korea and do all these rotations that mm. you know, active duty people do. So we all had our chores. I'm also uh, one of three siblings and I'm the baby of the family. And we all had our jobs. So my job, I was more proficient at cooking. So that became my job for the family. So mm. my first <laughs> meal was cooked at nine years old. Was it good? No. But did I cook it? Yes. So <laughs> I grew up eating very homey country Puerto Rican style meals. So salted codfish with root vegetables, um, blood sausage, liver and onions, um, stews, all the things that my mother's mother taught her how to cook is what she taught me how to cook. And that's what we grew up eating. I see. My dad grew up with a very 
um, you know, his family came from South Carolina before the, the, during the great migration, they moved their way up to New, New Jersey. And he came from country people who, you know, we were eating field peas and, you know, purple peas and black eyed peas and <laughs> ham hocks were a very, you know, a, a predominant protein in our family. Ham hocks were the thing. Um, <laughs> the fried bologna sandwiches, you know, things like that. That's what yeah. we were eating growing up. So that was my, that's what I remember about childhood and meals during childhood. For most people, food is, is a, a cultural center of uh, their lives, you know, mm -hmm. be it childhood throughout their lives. Um, there's a lot of memory. We talked about this on the panel, right? There's a lot of mm -hmm. memories and food. When you think about that, um, and growing up cooking from a really young age, how did that spiral then into a career in food? You know, I don't have, whereas most people have um, fond memories attached to childhood food, mm -hmm. I don't have good memories. I have a lot of memories of food insecurity. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people assume that if you're in the military, you have a lot of money. Mm. And that couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth. Um, like I said, the military, even today, some of them, most of them are considered the working poor. They don't get nearly as much money as they should for what they do and the amount of time they do it. And that was applicable to both of my parents. Right. Um, and then when they divorced, there was a huge, you know, void in money management, I will say. I wouldn't say that we were necessarily poor because we were just you know, broke. It was just now that as an adult, I can see that there was not as good money management as there should have been. So there was not an abundance of food in my house. Um, I grew up, you know, drinking powdered milk mm -hmm. and, you know, trying to figure out how I can make this meal out of absolutely it, what, what seemed to be nothing. Mm. So when I was a I would say it was 11 because it was before my mom went to Korea. I had a conversation with her and I told her the only thing that I'm going to be able to do when I become an adult is be a housewife because I only know how to cook and clean houses. Ah. And it devastated her. I mean, she felt mm. so, she felt, she told me she felt like a failure because as a very independent working woman, she felt like she, she should have better equipped me. Little did she know I was being equipped for what was my destiny, which was cooking. Um, it is where I felt like I knew what I was doing. I felt like I was put on this planet to cook. And if there's nothing else that I don't know how to do, if there's anything that I'm good at, I know cooking is it. And that's a really, thank you for sharing that. That's, I think it's a really important story to tell. Mm -hmm. One, from the context of the military, right? And what assumptions yeah. there are are about it. Um, but two, what does food insecurity look like? We we make yeah. a lot of assumptions um, or we, it's always egregious to me, um, mm -hmm. but I think the mainstream view of it um, isn't always what it is. Um, they don't showcase the scale or the trajectory of what food insecurity can look like. And I think that you you captured it in a way that most people don't think about. Um, with that being said, I can see it's evident that your mother gave you the tools from just 
almost it was a necessity, right? You got the tools mm-hmm. through necessity. Somebody had yeah. to do it. Um, and you were assigned to that. Uh, at what point did you know that this was a passion to pursue? Um, obviously following that conversation at, at 11, but when did that passion kind of grow and you wanted to focus on that um, as a career choice? I went to a Votech high school and Mm. To be quite honest, I didn't even know that the high school, I, look, I was so clueless to the world that <laughs> I was just like, this is the, the closest high school to go to. So I got to go to this high school. And during my sophomore year, the culinary arts instructor, you know, passed me in the hall. She was also, she was a Puerto Rican uh, woman. And I don't know, we just connected. And she, she knew that I loved cooking because I would always talk to her about it. And she asked me if I wanted to become, a, you know, to, to get into the culinary arts program at Arvo Tech High School. And of course I said yes. Mm-hmm. And when I got in that kitchen, it just felt like second nature. And I won't say that, you know, a lot of chefs say that I grew up cooking at the elbow of my grandmother. And that's great. But that's not my experience as a chef. Mine, my cooking was, through, again, through necessity. And it was something that, you know, you got to eat. So why not know how to cook? Right. But when I got into that, that classroom, which was, you know, it's staged just as a commercial kitchen. um, I just felt right. You know, I felt like this was where I belonged. I knew what I was doing. I was very fluid in what I was doing. And this is a, you know, 14, 15 years old. I knew that this was where I belonged. Even when I burned myself or I cut myself, it just, it, it's so weird. I'm not like a masochist, but I just feel like <laughs> it just felt like I was accomplishing something. And that was just, you know, my battle scar. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people don't think about, I had a, I, I grew up in a small town, mm-hmm. but we had a vocational high school that um, people could opt to go to. And one of the programs was also uh cooking chef I don't Mm -hmm. food sciences I forget what the actual title was it was it was um that was the program though and I was surprised by my my friends at the time who went into the program how intense it actually was and the skills that they were actually given they said like I said I wanted to be a chef but like my my teacher and this is in high school is telling me you need to measure every single thing we don't play that like you just throw a dash in here a dash in mm-hmm. there they said they really got a strong foundation in what it was like to be a professional chef um mm-hmm. even that early at you know 13 through 17 was that your experience as well it absolutely was because we were preparing the meals for the staff so it wasn't you know, we're just, it wasn't like home ec where you, you know, make a muffin and right. you take it home or you <laughs> eat it with your friends. This was a professional kitchen where the staff would come in and we would serve them as a restaurant. We had a hospitality section and we had, you know, the culinary arts section and hospitality would be the front of the house and we would be the back of the house. And I mean, we were selling products during Christmas we would make and sell gingerbread for the, the community. So this was, we were learning that there are causes and effects and there are consequences and repercussions if you fail to order the right amount of pro- product mm-hmm. or you don't, you don't cook something properly or you accidentally mix up sugar and salt. Like there are, there are um, 
you know, we learned how to operate in that environment at, at a professional level, not just as like, we weren't playing kitchen. We were working in a kitchen for free, right. by the way. But, you know, <laughs> um, but what's crazy is that when I met my husband later on, he went to a Votech high school. Oh, he went, okay. Yeah. And I was just kind of like, you know, I didn't know how um, underrepresented Votech high schools are in this country. And I feel like even now, my kids want to go to school to be geneticists and mechanical engineers, but it's very important to me that they learn a trade Mm -hmm. because I feel like you will always need a plumber. You will always need an electrician. You you might always need a carpenter. Mm -hmm. You always need to eat. So if you learn these skills, you have something in your back pocket. Absolutely. And I think, I think that's really important. My, uh, my husband is from Jamaica and uh, his parents were teachers. They did go to college, but his dad also studied woodworking and mm-hmm. his parents were eventually able to leave teaching and his dad makes furniture, custom furniture for resorts and oh my became a, a business you know, owner. And I, that's, that, that's a trade, right? Um, not mm-hmm. everybody can do that. And it's a trade that's needed. Uh, so Absolutely. I think, I think that is, an excellent teaching for for your twins, but also for um, any any kid or any young adult who's who's considering a career. Like um, college doesn't have to be the way. I think that a, a trade is just as good, um, and sometimes better. Yeah, I mean, and sometimes be better. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I tell, and as a homeschool mom, and you know, I've been doing this for a few years, and I always try to mentor younger homeschoolers or homeschool families. And I tell them college is not for everybody. And that's okay. You know, because it doesn't, you know, you getting a, a, a degree in whatever may not pay the bills. Right. You know, but like I said, everybody needs a plumber, period. There's yep. no caveats. To that. Yep. <laughs> so not everybody is built for college. And not everybody is built to be a tradesman. Right. And there's no, there's no shame. There's no harm in that. And as a parent, I think it's very important for you to respect the fact that college may be not be the, you know, the future for your child. Definitely. And it's interesting because even you've been able to do that, right? You got your mm-hmm. foundation at um, your Votech school. We also called ours Votech. I, I guess that's a, a national thing. I always thought it was only like what we called ours, but it's, it, it seems that yeah, it's a thing. It's a, it's the common language. Yeah. But, uh, You've been able to spiral that, um, you know, your experience there into, I believe, a chef's career, but also yeah. blogging. Yeah. So that's crazy. <laughs> it, it's it's crazy, but it's great. Um, and it's awesome. <laughs> I'm curious what made you. I am curious what made you interested in blogging, um, as as you obviously you had the technical skill from schooling and and formal schooling. What made you interested in the blogging aspect? I um, graduated from culinary school a month before I got married, which Mm. I was 20, I was 20, I was 21. I had just turned 21. So I was able to drink the champagne at my wedding um, (laughs) by a month. And I had no idea. Like I said, my, my goal was not to marry anybody in the military, having grown up in that life um, and experienced the, the transient lifestyle of that. 
right here I go falling in love and ended up getting married and promptly I think we were at our duty state now I was married for maybe a year and a half before I joined the army myself oh okay (laughs) went into a field completely different than culinary arts I was a, a military intelligence analyst um and then when I got out of the army the army decided okay let's start moving so you can't, as an active duty family member, or especially a military spouse, we're, we're dinged because potential employers know that we're probably going to leave within two to three years because right. that's our rotation. Mm-hmm. So of course, me being a chef, I'm applying for jobs in kitchens and they're looking at me like, mm, yeah, maybe not so much because we know we're going to train you in two years or three years from now, you're going to leave. Right. Um, so my most humbling experience in attempting to find a job in my career field was having to work at a child development center and cooking for 350, you know, infant to five-year-old kids. And oh, wow. they will tell you <laughs> how trashy they think your cinnamon toast was. They will tell you how yucky they think your pizza was. And <laughs> it was just a very humbling experience. Definitely. They're honest. Yeah. So they're, they're brutally honest, but you know, it, gave me more skills. You know, I was able to take certain, you know, courses and certifications through the military that I wouldn't have been able to have any other way. I was able to cook in Germany and Italy and Europe and, you know, do all these wonderful things, but I was not being fulfilled in my career. Right. Because I wasn't working in, you know, a Michelin star restaurant. I wasn't working in any restaurant and I felt like I was failing. So it wasn't until I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in December (laughs) on Christmas Eve of 2010 that it kind of, I had that epiphany, Mm. like I have a disease and MS runs in my family. I'm the fourth of five people to be diagnosed in my family with multiple sclerosis. Oh, wow. Um, There's only two of us still alive. One of them was my mom. Mm -hmm. So and again, I was her caregiver. So I knew what this disease bit does, you know, right. I knew it, it takes the ability, the use of your hands and your legs. And those are things you need as a chef. So it was in that moment when I was diagnosed with that disease that I said to myself, I have not done anything that I'm proud of short of having my children. You know, I haven't done anything that I'm proud of as an individual. Yeah. So I said, I needed to create a legacy you know, of my own. And I started writing a cookbook and Mm. I wrote my cookbook and self-published it. And when it was, you know, when people started receiving the cookbook after buying it, they were just like, girl, you need to be a, you you need to write. You're, you're like Irma (laughs) Bombeck of the culinary world, you know? And it wasn't until people started telling me how much they enjoyed reading my voice. Um, in a cookbook of all places that I realized that, and I had no idea what blogging was. I don't read food blogs because I don't need them. I don't think. You right. Know? Right. Uh huh. I understand. I love cookbooks. So I have cookbooks, but I don't really, I never really got into the blogging scene because I didn't need recipes. Um, and then when I realized that that was a thing, I was like, I can do this. I can teach people how to cook and write about it and do all this stuff. So in 2016, December of 2016, I started, you know, getting really serious about writing, you know, my recipes and putting them out for the world to see, which was a whole 
crazy adventure in, in and of itself, but it's, yeah. you know, it, it certainly is. And I think one thing that I've really, that I really respect about you is that I think your authenticity shows through your writing. Um, it's not just the recipe, it's the story behind it. And I like, I'm asking you this question in particular, uh, not a lot of people ask what sets you apart. I think it's evident what sets you apart. Uh, I'm more curious in either what advice or what your thoughts are around how someone brings their authentic entire selves to their blogging, especially uh, an underrepresented blogger. The reality is, and the very harsh truth of life is that nobody, it, everybody is not going to like you all the time, right? Right. There is mm-hmm. nothing that we can do short of, like, there's no, absolutely nothing we can do to be acceptable to all people all the time, nor should we want to, because there's some really foul people out there in the world, right? That's right. the truth mm-hmm. of the matter. Mm-hmm. So why do I want to be acceptable to people who I wouldn't even have a drink with? Right. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times, especially in this industry, we get imposter syndrome is so real where you feel that this person who has, you know, 150,000 followers or 500,000 followers is so much better than you because of their following. And that's yeah. not the case because nobody has the voice that you have. Nobody has the, the drive that you have. Nobody has the, you know, the, 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 the authentic self that you are. Right? Mm-hmm. There's only one you. There's only one me. I spent my entire life trying to be acceptable to my black, you know, peers or trying to be acceptable to my Puerto Rican peers. I was not Puerto Rican enough for some of them. I was not black enough for the others. Mm-hmm. So at some point I just said, you know what? I like me. And if you don't like me, that's okay. You're wrong, but that's okay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so I started writing in a voice that made me proud. You know, it was a voice that gave, you know, people an idea about who I was as a person. And so long as I was able to read whatever I wrote or be able to listen back, whatever I spoke and hold my head up and look at myself in the mirror and not feel ashamed, I knew I was on the right track. And I think that that is one, it's something I needed to hear, but I think it's a thing that a lot of people need to hear, uh, especially because I think that many of us experience the imposter syndrome and social media, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, uh, have many people putting unrealistic expectations on themselves. Um, And at the end of the day, I, I do think that people are able to thrive when they feel less concerned without the, without when they feel less concerned about those things and more mm-hmm. about, as you said, what do I feel proud of that I've done? Um, it's so important, like as a community to build each other up. I, the other mm-hmm. day, some, some girl on Twitter, I don't even follow her. She doesn't follow me. She <laughs> said that she got accepted into pharmacy school and I congratulated her and I was all, go ahead, sis. I'm so proud of you. I don't know this woman. Yeah. Yeah. But what does it take for me? to encourage somebody who probably has not received that encouragement in her whole life, you know, from a stranger, no less. Exactly. It it takes nothing from us to put wind in the sails of somebody else, you know? And I think we, 
we need to do that more often as well. We need to encourage each other and tell each other you're doing a great job and call it out when we see it, you know? Yeah. And I, I definitely, I agree with you. And um, that's why obviously the forum, which we met the black food bloggers club and some of the things we we participate in together. I think those have been great forums for that, especially yeah. uh, within the black community specifically. Uh, but I know also um, one of the things that motivates me are some of the followers I have or readers I have who I don't even know they're reading it. And, and they're like, I really thought that was dope. Right. (laughs) So I am thinking about your blog. What are some of the things that you posted either recipes or just more general posts that have really resonated with readers or that uh, you hear a lot about? You know, the other day I was talking to somebody and he said that he was having a really bad day. He's an ICU. He's the head of an ICU um, at a a military hospital here in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. And he was telling me, he's just, you know, he was having a horrible day and he wanted, you know, to eat something that was very comforting and very, you know, filling. And he was on my blog and he was reading my blog. um, And it was uh, some braised ribs that I have on the blog. And he just, he said at, at one point, as he was reading the post, he heard my, like, he felt my presence in his room with him. Like he mm. said, he could have turned around and had the conversation with me. He, he was reading it. And he said, the way you write, it made it feel like you were, we were in the kitchen and you were talking to me. And wow. I have never felt so like somebody got it. You know what I mean? And hearing him say that it, it really made my day. It made my year to be quite honest. It's right. Because that's my goal. My goal is to equip people, you know, and motivate them to, to know that they can cook X, Y, or Z or bake this, that, or the other. You know, it's great because that also allows them, uh, you're evoking nostalgia, memory, and positivity in them. Right. Um, yeah, it has the power to do that. And, um, it's great that your recipes can do that in both ways. One from that teaching aspect, that teaching and coaching aspect as you're reading, which we talked about before, that's why the stories behind the recipe are so important Mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Um, You're giving good tidbits about how to make the recipe or your thought process. But then also on the other side that um, culturally, you're reigniting in them something that they've missed or haven't been able to have in a long time. And you know what? There's also that that niche of, of readers who have not been connected with their culture for so long. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a lot of readers who tell me that they weren't raised around the Puerto Rican side of their family, or they were raised in the States, or even my black readers who say that, you know, they're mixed, they're biracial, so they weren't raised around, you know, their black family. So they don't know how to make these things. Mm-hmm. And they're desperate to connect to their culture in that way, you know, and, and figure out how to find their identity. I, I can't imagine being so detached from who you are culturally mm-hmm. that, that you're desperate to find your identity through food. But if I'm the one to help you do it, I'm, I'm there with you. No, that's, that's, an, that's amazing. So as you think about, you, you've done so much with your blog, as you think about what you're looking forward to and next steps, uh, what, what is coming up in the future for sense and edibility? Oh, 
That's a good question. Well, <laughs> moving moving into a designated studio space, we built a studio in the house. Yeah, that gorgeous kitchen. Yes. <laughs> So I'm going to actually be able to not, um, you know, create content in my living room, which is fantastic for me because, Mm -hmm. you know, creativity is stifled by your environment. So um, lots of videos are coming to Sense and Edibility. I find that a lot of people are very receptive and appreciate videos. And when I do my instructional videos, they say that it helps them a lot more. So I'm really encouraged to do that. Most important, what, what means the most to me is just to continue to put out um, recipes and content that, like I said, I can be proud of. I, would, I don't want to stand behind anything that is not something that I wouldn't give to my family or use in my house. So being super authentic is very important to me and having my hand on whatever is put out under sense and edibility is, is very So it is time for a table topic and table topics are the part of my show where my guest, you get to drop some knowledge or share some of your experience with my listeners. And we were on a panel together called Black Food Is. And one of the questions that we got asked is, I believe the question was, describe a dish that represents you. Um, And I think we all kind of initially stumbled, like, how do we answer that? Uh, But I thought you gave such a fantastic answer of a dish that describes both of your cultures. So Mm -hmm. I was hoping you would share that dish with us and then give me a history of some of the ingredients, um, but also what they mean for you personally. So the dish that I chose was representative of both my Black culture and my Puerto Rican culture, and it is bacalao guisado with grits. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, uh, um, the Spanish colonizers that came to Puerto Rico, and I mean, they were bringing slaves to the island, which were going to go further on to the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, they brought salted codfish with them. Uh, you know, because that's what sailors did on their journeys. And salted codfish is a huge uh, food in the West Indies period. I mean, amongst all the Caribbean islands, there's mm-hmm. some sort of salt fish being prepared. Um, so in Puerto Rico, it's bacalao guisado and it's just stewed codfish. And Got it's it. a tomatoey broth, very, you know, aromatic and garlicky and beautiful and luscious and we serve it typically over rice but you know me I'm extra all the time (laughs) so I decided grits are good and we eat shrimp and grits so why not codfish and grits so I started serving my bacalao guisado over grits and sometimes I'll add cheese to my grits Sometimes I always add garlic to my grits because garlic is always a good idea. Mm-hmm. So I serve that over, um, yeah, grits, creamy grits. And I think that more people should morph their cultures into one dish. Oh, absolutely. So <laughs> I, I was going to ask how were grits made in your house? You know, I, my mom actually puts a whole block of cream cheese in her grits and 
Really? Oh, but like they create the creamiest grits I've ever had. Like now I only do it that way. So listen, my philosophy is never yuck somebody's yum. Yes. (laughs) That might be the new thing. And I will totally try it with, 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 with cream cheese. I don't, for me, (laughs) growing growing up in my family, grits were coming from like the instant grits. So Mm -hmm. they weren't grits, grits. Um, it wasn't until I became an adult and started making them for myself that I, I started doing the laborious stirring of the grits. But for me, I always use a chicken broth mm-hmm. to start my grits. And then, of course, like I said, garlic. I saute my garlic in butter. And then I add my chicken stock. And then I slowly stir in my grits. And then I add um, usually a, a sharp cheddar into my grits to make mm-hmm. cheddar grits. To get a little bit of sourness. Yes, exactly. And then I finish it with um, half and half to make it super creamy. So, Marta, I'm trying to roll my R's. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You did good, friend. (laughs) I tried. I tried. Uh, It was such a pleasure uh, having you on the podcast, hearing your story, seeing all that you've accomplished. Um, I say hearing, but I was literally visualizing all that you've accomplished. And I want my listeners to all go and follow you. How do they do that? Uh, How do they tune in um, to this, to your videos? And how do they read some of your recipes? Well, you can read my recipes on my website. It is senseandedibility.com. If you're a fan of Jane Austen, you kind of hear the play on words. Um, Sense and Edibility is the website, and I am on Instagram and Facebook with the same name, Sense and Edibility. I'm on Twitter and Pinterest as Edible Sense, and I also have a YouTube channel under Sense and Edibility. So you can awesome. find me everywhere. <laughs>